Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, and along with me on this journey, revisiting 80s movies, is my co-host, Jason Masek. Hello, Jason. Jason, what happened? Bill, the ship just got herpes. That's right, listeners. For this episode, we'll be discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the space comedy The Ice Pirates from 1984, starring Robert Urich, Mary Crosby, and Michael D. Roberts. Directed by Stuart Raphael, this movie is rated PG with a running time of 1 hour and 31 minutes. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is what's on the box. Take it away, Jason. It's the best star-studded entertainment in the galaxy. It's Ice Pirates, the swashbuckling sci-fi adventure that will blast you right into orbit. Starring Robert Urich and Mary Crosby, Ice Pirates is the spectacular space odyssey set 10,000 years in the future. It's a mighty thirsty universe whose entire water supply is controlled by the evil Templar Empire. They ship frozen blocks of the precious fluid across the far reaches of space. Only the Ice Pirates, the bravest bunch of buccaneers ever to steer a starship, can hijack the frozen treasure. A dazzling display of weird creatures and special effects, Ice Pirates reaches far into fantasy to create a universe of visual excitement, a time and place belonging only to the realm of the imagination. Robert Urich plays the dashing pirate leader with plenty of swash and buckle, while Mary Crosby sizzles as the interstellar beauty who captures our hero's heart. Loaded with thrills and romance, Ice Pirates bursts with the energy of the stars to bring you first-rate intergalactic entertainment. Get on board with the Ice Pirates for the wildest space ride this side of the Milky Way. The Ice Pirates. A totally spaced adventure. You have to be there to see it. Yes, Ice The Ice Pirates. Not Ice Pirates. The Ice Pirates. I don't know which it is according to this synopsis. Because Ice Pirates is mentioned six times in the uh, what's on the box segment hilarious and it it kept saying ice pirates and then it says the ice pirates but i had to double check when i began my notes and i was like oh yeah it's the ice pirates full title ah i can't wait to break down this humdinger with you bill bant looking forward to it myself are you though are you yes let's (laughs) clear the air right here so usually every six months, Jason and I decide on our, what our schedule is going to be. And Jason will submit a list. I submit a list. And then we kind of go back and forth a little bit on what's going to be on the schedule. Every time Jason submitted a list to me of movies that he wants to cover on this show, the Ice Pirates is always on that <laughs> list. Guilty okay? as charged. So I think this is just payback for me making you watch Neighbors. Okay, so now we're even. Let's get I disagree. It. I don't think we're even. I think I owe you big time. And I owe you a serious apology for this one. <laughs> Holy shitballs. The Ice Pirates. <laughs> let's save that. Let's save that. So let's move on to our earliest memories. What, what are our earliest memories of the Ice Pirates? Because I'm thinking they might be the same. 
And then it's going to be interesting how this all turns out at the end. Absolutely. I would imagine they would be similar. I, I will begin with some early memories. So it's early 1984. I'm 10 years old and I'm still in the full grasp of the Star Wars mythological universe. I start seeing movie previews for a space adventure that appears to be on a desert planet. There's a roguish hero and a robot. That's all I remember. And thus, I'm all in. I'm pretty sure I asked my dad to go see this, or at least hinted strongly at it, maybe on the verge of begging him to go see this. And it may have very well been one of the first movies or the first movie I went to see with my dad alone, just him and I together. So that's a special early memory for me. Bottom line, The Ice Pirates. This film was not what I expected. I remember that. That's definitely an early memory. It was not what I was looking for and not what I wanted. I do have a very vague memory of trying my hardest to like it, to glean something positive from it. But the real issue is that I didn't understand it was supposed to be a comedy. I was looking for, as I said, Star Wars, of course. I didn't know what the film was going for. Either I didn't pick it up on it, I didn't pick up on the comedy cues in the trailers, and I did watch the trailer, and it's there. It's clearly there, the way that the trailer is put together and how it's the story is framed. But for whatever reason, at 10 years old, just didn't seem to have a clue. It was either that the comedy plane didn't work for me, or the fact that this was just another poor man's Star Wars knockoff, or a poor man's knockoff of Star Wars. It was campy and goofy, and regardless, I, I was disappointed. That's just, unfortunately, an early memory, and that's it. I mean, I have vague memory of memories of images of the action, but nothing else besides that, which I already mentioned. So I just want to thank my dad for sitting through this one back in the day, just to make his kid happy, because, oof. What are your earliest memories of the Ice Pirates? So I can't believe you actually saw this in the theater. I'm sorry. I remember seeing the trailers on tv and i mm -hmm. wanted to see this movie so bad and i remember begging my dad to go see it and then i remember one afternoon playing with my friends and one of my friends is like oh i gotta leave my dad's taking me to see ice pirates and i was so jealous that he was gonna go and i was not i was so bummed and then they came back from the movies and he was a little bit younger than I was, but he liked it. So I was like, oh man, I really want to see this. And then even asking my dad again, he still did not want to take me. And now I look back on it. I bet the dads talked and said, no, don't take your son. <laughs> it's not a good movie. And it was one of those movies. I would see it at the video store and just keep passing it up, passing it up. And then at that point, you heard all the stories about how awful this movie was mm -hmm. and then it just became i just have to see it i just have to see it for myself just rent it and that's what i did and i don't remember that much about the movie so obviously i did not think it was good and that's about all i got i got a lot more <laughs> once we get into it but that's really my earliest memories there's not that much to talk about it but i was hooked like you by the trailers it seemed interesting yeah and i love the fact that you had to see it just to know how bad could it really be and that goes for me to this day with those types of films where they get panned by the critics and the audiences alike and i'm just like there's no way this film can be that bad it's got either a star-studded cast or the director and or writer or cinematographer whomever it may be it might be a great crew it's just like okay 
I need to see it for myself, or it's maybe the darker side of me that just wants to see a train wreck and to join in on the bashing. You know, it's it's just something we do. I'm guilty of it. I do like to rip a movie apart for whatever reasons. And I do understand no filmmaker goes into the process wanting to make a bad movie. However, it happens. And you and I, Bill, know how difficult it is and the magic and the luck and the teamwork and all the different factors that go into making a movie that have to click in order to make it work. And you need a little extra just to make it successful. So when you just go, this just was wrong from the beginning, we have fun with it sometimes picking it apart, which I think we're about to do here. So hopefully we'll have a little fun with it and we'll have some understanding as well. And for me, for bad movies, I think what I like about them is sometimes a learning experience for me Mm -hmm. because I'd like to see, okay, where did it go wrong and how, if possible, especially if it's story-wise, how could they have corrected that? Absolutely. I don't know. I think of it as a learning experience and I try to apply that to when I'm writing something. Okay. I wrote myself in a corner. How do I get myself out? I'm like, how much do I have to back up in order to work around this problem or because that's that's the one thing that always drives me up the wall about a movie is it gets to a problem and then it does this that would never happen situation and that drives me nuts and there's definitely a lot of that in this movie sure i'm taking this away as a learning experience <laughs> that's good that's very positive i appreciate that yeah but it's still a bad movie and we're going to talk about it so let's move on to initial thoughts jason because there's really a lot i want to talk about oh great what are your initial thoughts Of the Ice Pirates. Well, I'll try to be efficient here. I'm going to start with the main player. And I'm only going to talk about the main protagonist, our lead actor, Robert Urich. There are obviously several cast members and there are other stars, which I will mention in this film. But I just thought for time's sake, we'll talk about Robert Urich, whom for whatever reason, I kept calling in my head Robert Ulrich. And I started typing it, his name that way when I was doing my notes. And I'm like, wait, wait, no, that's not his name. What is his name? And he's a very famous actor. I'm like, what the hell is wrong with me? Robert Urich. First of all, RIP. Robert, he passed away from cancer at the very young age of 55. I did yeah. not know that. Really sad. Talented guy. Wonderful leading man. Done a ton of work. I'm going to break down a little bit of his background for you. This is from IMDb, from his biography. Robert Urich had earned his bachelor's degree in radio and television communications from the Florida State University, FSU, in 1968, and his master's degree in broadcast research and management from Michigan State University in 1971. He joined at WGN Radio in Chicago as a sales account representative. He briefly appeared as a TV weatherman and soon realized he wanted to become an actor. Urich's big break came in 72 when he played Burt Reynolds' younger brother in a stage production of The Rainmaker. Reynolds and Urich were both alumni of FSU. Reynolds brought him to California and let him stay in his home until he got his acting break. He also recommended Urich to producer Aaron Spelling for the TV series SWAT in 1975. Although that series lasted only for one season, Spelling remembered Urich and later cast him in Vegas in 1978, which had a longer run. So uh, going to Urich's filmography here just for a little bit, he goes way back. Did a ton of work when he was very young. Uh, he had a, a part in 1973's Magnum Force as Officer Grimes. Again, he was on the TV show SWAT. 
then the show Soap in 77. He was on The Love Boat for a few episodes. He was then in 69 episodes of the show Vegas from 1978 to 1981. He played the role of Dan Tana. And then The Ice Pirates here in this year, 1984. He was in Turk 182 in 1985. Oh, yeah. I do remember that. Yeah, there you go. And then also he is known for Spencer for Hire Yep. Uh, from 1985 to 1988. He was in the highly acclaimed TV miniseries Lonesome Dove in 1989. And then I'm going to fast forward to later on his career. He did a ton of episodic one-offs on, on different television series. He did a ton of TV movies. And then uh, he was in a show called The Lazarus Man. He plays the lead role, Lazarus, in 1996. Uh, and I believe that's kind of when he started getting sick, unfortunately. But cancer went into remission for a bit. And then he came back and did some episodes of Love Boat, The Next Wave, from 1998 uh, to 1999. Um, and that was uh, a little bit there towards the end. So um, RIP Robert Urich, great leading man. It has a really, really rich filmography, probably most well-known and most famous for his TV series leading roles. Yes, now getting into some other initial thoughts, as I had stated earlier, there are other stars in this movie. Angelica Houston and Ron Perlman are in this movie, ladies and gentlemen. Angelica Houston and Ron Perlman are in this movie. Had to say it again. Yeah. Rob Perlman, I could understand. I just kept going over, why is Angelica Houston in this movie? Yeah. Look, as soon as the film started, I was like, oh boy. <laughs> I mean, as soon as it started. When the opening title card graphics aren't that hot, that's not a good sign. I thought maybe this was like the opening for a Saturday morning cartoon. Thanks to the opening synopsis card that exposition and narration, we understand that this will be like a road warrior in space, but instead of gasoline or petrol, it's water that is the precious commodity. And the credits roll, and I'm like, do the letter fonts, the font that they use, does that denote a medieval tone? So I'm like, okay, so it is actually a cross-genre film with actual people dressed up as medieval warriors and knights in space. As in like the Knights Templar. So now I'm getting it because that's provided in the opening prologue. The bad guys are called Templars. Got it. Except it has nothing to do with the history of the actual Knights Templar, which is a Catholic military order. Okay, got it. So it's Road Warrior meets Battlestar Galactica meets Medieval Times. And by Medieval Times, I do mean the restaurant. Sure. Okay. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Robert Urich has a ponytail. Oh, yeah. That was, that's Dashing. a special thought. Oh, yeah. Great look. And I'm just going to follow that up by saying there's a pimp robot in this movie. There's a pimp robot in this movie, which, spoiler alert, might be the highlight of the film. Spoiler alert. No, it's not. <laughs> this movie is without question one of the worst films I've ever seen. Wow. It's worse than Neighbors. Much worse. And I was wrong. Yeah, it's not a poor man's knockoff of Star Wars. It's just a poor man's knockoff of about 10 different sci-fi action films. Look. If it's supposed to be funny in a completely like derivative way, because it's very derivative in its nature, or it's supposed to be comedic in an homage to these other films, it fails on every level. It's just not funny. For example, you know, it's like, hey, let's have our heroes pretend to be eunuch slaves and leotards. Comedy gold. Ooh, no, it's just weird. 
It doesn't know what it's supposed to be. The movie is cheaply made. It's apparent in almost every scene from effects to costume design to set design. The writing is batshit. I love that the robots in the movie, they just call robots. Okay. The acting is eh, mediocre. The music is circus-like silly. I like Bruce Boughton, who did the score for this. It's terrible. It's terrible. Speaking of neighbors, right? We had- Oh, uh, yeah. Bill Conte. Yeah. It was, it's very similar. They just decided, I'm going to do this goofy score for this movie. And it just, what are we doing? Yep. Uh, the action in this is a bit slow and it's inexplicable at times in certain moments. It has the weird 80s sexualized aspect throughout. It's an hour and a half long and it feels like two hours. Here's what I'll say. Angelica Houston actually has some decent moments in it, in my opinion. Okay. But they're few. But she has a couple okay moments and that's about the positive there, folks, from my standpoint. Lastly, now, I really appreciate my dad sitting through this movie. Just going back to our dads here. Oh, boy. I got to thank him as soon as I can. That's all I got for initial thoughts, man. What, what are your initial thoughts watching this movie today? The first thing I have to say is as soon as I saw that title card, it's like, oh, Jace is going to crush this. <laughs> He's going to crush this. So I'm glad you did not disappoint. All on right. that. We've been doing this podcast long enough. I'm like, all right, I know he's going after the credit. You gotta start strong, man. But yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. All right. So I'm just gonna go to my my one question about this movie, and then I'll get into more initial thoughts. Who is this movie for? That's what I could not figure out. Great question. Who was this movie made for? We both said in earliest memories. We're you know between nine and, and eleven. And we wanted to see it because of our love for Star Wars and space fantasy. So you would think this movie would be made for us, but it's got space herpes and weird love scenes mm -hmm. and talking about raping and pillaging. So I'm like, that's not something for kids our age. A racial slur here and there. Oh, yeah. I totally agree. I have it in my notes as well. Right. It's not for girls. Yes, it has a princess in it. It's not for adults. Right. Is it an adult comedy or is it supposed to be a silly sci-fi show for kids? Yeah, because it's the humor is some fart jokes and castration jokes are funny now. <laughs> I didn't know that. So, yeah, it's not for adults. It's not a family film. It's not for young kids. Who the hell did they make this movie for? That's what just kept running through my mind the whole time. As an audience, why am I watching this movie? Yeah. I don't know. What was the studio thinking? Yeah, it just wasn't working. I had to unfortunately watch this twice. So I'll explain that in a minute. All right. So when I first started watching the movie, and I had seen this before, and I literally remembered nothing. Right. This yeah. was really like watching it for the first time. And because I knew it was a bad movie, it started, and I actually thought it was okay. It's not good, but I'm along for the ride. And then about the 45-minute mark, I mean, we're halfway through the movie, I was saying to myself, I wish this movie was so bad it was good. Right. And it's not, and I just wanted to be over at this point. Because the movie's supposed to be ice pirates, but they only really do ice pirating in the first 20 minutes of the movie. That is correct. And then... The whole story turns around about finding this princess's dad, but I didn't know what the princess's connection was. I still don't get the story. The simple story is 
it's these ice pirates who steal some ice. They get captured, and this princess rescues them for some reason to help them find her father because her father supposedly knows where there's another planet with water in it. The seventh world. Correct. And spoiler alert, I'm just going to say it. The seventh world is Earth. What? Yes. And... But it takes all these weird deviations. Like they start a story and then stop it. They start like a plot line and stop it. They must have did like three times. Like they introduced something. And I'm like, oh, okay. I wonder how this is going to tie into the rest of the movie. And it doesn't. But then they just kind of bring it up again just to say, oh, yeah. Remember what we talked about in act one? Here it is again in act three. But it really had nothing to do with the story. So that was really confusing me. And then honestly, Jason. So when the movie ends, it does one of those freeze frame shots. And then the credits start rolling and the credits show stills from scenes that took place during the film. Right. I actually forgot. This is a 90 minute movie. And I actually, I was like, wait, when did that happen? Oh yeah. I forgot about that because this movie jumps around so much. Mm -hmm. And when it was over, I was like, shit, I got to watch this again because I don't remember half the stuff. And I didn't really write that many notes down the first time I watched it, but just because I didn't remember it. So I was just trying to absorb the movie and just get a sense of what it was about, who it was for. And after I watched it the first time, I got none of those questions got answered. This movie is a mess. Why does this even get greenlit? I'm going to step on trivia because initially... This is supposed to be a $20 million movie. I think it was supposed right. to be called The Water Planet. And MGM was going through some financial trouble and they slashed the budget to less than half. Yeah, I think it went from $20 million to $8 million is what I read. Correct. And they decided they were going to make this a comedy. And I would have really liked to have seen the other version. Yeah. I would like to read it just to find out how they went from a $20 million movie to this horrible eight million dollar movie i don't know this went through my head too because one of the things we always talk about when we talk about movies and we talk about special effects and we're guilty of it tons of other podcasts are guilty of it it's a trope we all do about shitty special effects or the special effects don't hold up and for some reason i didn't even let the special effects bother me because i was just like okay you know what it's a bad movie there's so many movies if you look back the special effects don't hold up i mean you watch jurassic park and you could see, oh, yeah, you can kind of see now with the dinosaurs. Does that mean I don't like the movie anymore? My favorite movie of all time is Jaws. Yes, the shark does not look real. Does that mean I do not like the movie anymore? No, I can't blame the special effects for if a movie works or doesn't work. Mm -hmm. It's the story and the situations and all that. And that was the main problem here. I, I was like, you know what? The special effects are actually passable. I actually liked the robot designs in this movie. Right. Yeah, me too. I actually did like them. I was a lot more forgiving on the acting. I thought everybody was passable. It wasn't. Yeah. We have never really done a bad, bad movie where the people on screen do not know how to act at all. At least everybody in this movie knows how to act. Correct. I would so agree. That's okay. But just the story elements in this are horrible. They make no sense. They spent most of the money, it seems like, on the interior of the spaceships, and they did 80% of them and didn't quite finish it. Mm -hmm. And the unfinished part really stands out. So that got annoying. Like there's a spaceship with a janitor's closet in it. Right. What is that? That's supposed to be funny? I'm not getting the humor. Who the hell is this movie for? Who was supposed to enjoy this? Because I can't come up with a demographic that would enjoy this movie. 
It just does not work. I feel really bad for the people that were involved in this. Well said and totally agree. Did you have any other thoughts? I think I'm thought it out right now. Yeah, well, those were excellent. And I had the exact same thought thinking about what it must have been like to be on this set, what that experience must have been like, because there's a lot of talented people working on this particular project. There's no way they're standing around going, oh, this is going to be magical. They're probably thinking, uh, this is this is a little rough. They just didn't have enough money. And the director came in, did the best he could with what he had. He had an idea. It was like in literally in the research, it says he really wanted to make a hodgepodge of things. He was using a lot of, he wanted to make it look a bit rough around the edges and very used. It just simply didn't work. I appreciate when you say, when you mentioned like a janitor's closet on the spaceship and those kinds of things could be funny if it was just a straight up space balls type of Mel Brooks type of comedy. That's one thing. That's a very specific thing. But in this type of thing where we just don't, like you said, we don't know who this is for, what this is supposed to be. It's very off-putting. When they land on a planet, Zagora, for instance, and they go to, they're in the city for trying to make some sort of arrangements for land craft. And then they go into the desert area. And then we have baby donkeys running around. It's very off-putting. Why are there donkeys on an alien planet? There's just elements of different genres mixed together that don't work together. Now, it's interesting because we have Stanford Sherman, who wrote this, who had written Krull, which is one of my cult favorites. You know, there's another example of mixing the medieval style with a science fiction tale, and that can work. It's not easy to blend those, but it can work. I thought it worked much better in Crawl versus this, but I could see that's Stanford Sherman's style, maybe. You know, if he's the one that came up with the story, uh, I'm assuming he did if he wrote it. So another glaring issue with this movie is it has a major villain problem. Because you're talking about the things that are missing, such as the stories jumping around all the time. We think it's supposed to be about these ice pirates and it's going to be an adventure, but is it a chase movie? Is it a time warp movie? Is it, what is this thing? But who's the main bad guy? That's a good question. You know, who's the big boss? Who's the big bad? So I was confused because I thought that was going to lead up because we understand that Zorn is sort of the bad guy in the beginning, but we know there is someone above him. The main guy is called the Supreme Commander, I believe. Correct. He's played by John Carradine. And he's withering away in a brief scene, and that's the only time we see him. And then Zorn kind of pops in and out throughout the film later on, but he's no Darth Vader. He's no Hans Gruber. He kind of pops in and he's just kind of evil, but not intimidating at all. And just not really present. And that's a real problem. We don't have a very clear bad guy. So the evil is a little faceless. We have some bounty hunters and we have some ships attacking and things like that. And some henchmen running around in their knight costumes with swords. And it's very jarring. We don't know which way is up. It's very confusing. When we first saw the Templars, Mm -hmm. when the ice pirates are breaking into the ship. Right. I let it slide. I'm like, okay, this is how they're going to roll with this. I'll accept it. But then I got confused because then we see the princess. And I thought the princess was the daughter of Zorn. Correct. Me too. Or the Supreme Commander, one or the other. Yeah. Right. And then you find out that she's not, but you don't find that out until 30 minutes into the movie. And then they spring on this whole, she's trying to find her father. Well, that was very confusing for me as well, because was she being held against her will 
by Zorn and the Supreme Commander. She seemed to be there of her own volition. She and her nanny are both there and seem to be existing in some sort of peace or peace accord or under some agreement of some kind. But then once she understands that the pirates have shown up, that being Jason, played by Robert Urich, and Roscoe, his buddy, played by Michael D. Roberts, then she's like, oh, I can recruit these pirates to help me get off world in my search for my father. Meaning, could she not have left before that? I didn't know what what her real situation was there on Mithra and existing with Zorn, the Supreme Commander, and the Templars. Yeah, I didn't know how that all tied in. And I guess we'll save most of this for complaints. Yeah, yeah. Because we do it all now. I think the big thing for me was the set design also. That really took me out of a lot of scenes. The Irish pirates first break into one of the ships, the Templar ships. I'll just say Templar ship. To steal ice because only one planet now produces water. And they ship ice to all the other planets and basically run the galaxy this way. And it's your stereotypical unnecessary lights and... They really took the time to do all the walls and the ceilings. And then you look at the floor and you can just tell it almost looks like a floor from a school classroom and the walls are just put on the floor. Mm-hmm. And that took me out of it. And there was one point they go to a planet because they have a lead on the princess's father is, and it's just basically fog machines and a tree branch and drapes. Yeah. And I was like, what the hell is this? Because they, they were on the other planet and it actually looked cool. The pirate homeworld. And it kind of had that Mad Mask X kind of look to oh, it. Oh, Zagora. When they go to Zagora looking for uh, lanky nibs. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, those more not. And I was like, okay, I, that's I a have cool it written set. down right in front of me, Bill. Oh, okay. <laughs> but still, the fact that you even took the time to write it down. Thank you. No, bro. I was like, all right, kind of, this set design looks pretty cool. That was passable. But then, I don't know. To me, Bill, it was like watching when I was watching it, there were moments when it felt like a good episode of Battlestar Galactica. I'm talking about the 1980s series. And sometimes when it looked like the worst possible episode of Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, it's a glorified TV movie. That's basically yes, what it, it is. is. It really is. And I feel like that it's interesting now looking back in how Star Wars A New Hope really kind of it set such a high bar at that time. It really was so far above and beyond when it came to special effects. And I mean, it's a great story, of course, and high fantasy science fiction and all these things. But just the look of the film and how much thought and detail went into it. And we talked about this a little bit when we did Aliens with James Cameron, who's a perfectionist. But if you go back to 1979's Alien, directed by Ridley Scott, same sort of thing. So if you take just like you're talking about the set design, you take a a still or a frame from one of those, one of the ships, just an interior of one of the ships and put it side by side with the Ice Pirates, you'll see the difference. Unfortunately, a lot of it, yes, does come down to money, but also the attention to detail. Because I know as a 10-year-old watching the Ice Pirates, I knew something was wrong. Something's different. And Star Wars has kind of ruined it for me, right? Because then oh, yeah. I look at Star Wars, and you do look at Star Wars now, because I'm looking at, let's say, a control panel in the command center of the, the ship, and you see blinking lights. They're squares, and they're just blinking lights. In Star Wars, I'm in hook, line, and sinker. I buy it. I'm like, each one of those buttons does something. There's a lever. Would However they constructed it, it looks 
tactile, tangible, and it looks like it serves a purpose. Take that still and put it next to the buttons on the dash of the command center in the Ice Pirates. And I'm like, that's a piece of plastic and there's nothing underneath it and it has no purpose at all. And that's a matter of attention to detail. And of course, again, budget makes a big difference, but hey, that's kind of the magic of filmmaking. And you know, we rip on all the different aspects and I've already ripped this apart going through every single aspect of the filmmaking process, but it's not as if these people weren't trying. It's just they probably didn't have a lot of material to work with. Yeah, I did ask that a couple of times. Did they not want Star Wars? Because right. they designed these ships after 50 sci-fi spaceships. Why would you do that? We've turned a page on that. You could have saved money on the lights and all the other doohickey stuff you did not need and put it somewhere else, it made the movie better or look better. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. You know, look, there's still some fun to be had with this movie and some laughs to be had about it. But this is a rough one, ladies and gentlemen, as you can already tell. So, but yeah, I'll give it this. There was actually one shot I did appreciate. It was in the very beginning after they steal the ice, kidnap the princess and they're being attacked. And they have a shot of Robert Yorick in the pilot's chair, the ship. And you could see he's all sweaty. And I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, it's nice that they didn't doll him up. He actually looks like he's going through a rough time. <laughs> I was just trying to find anything. And that was one of them. Like, okay, yeah. You know, you watch one of these movies, they run around and all that, and they don't sweat. Or they jump out of the ocean, and they're all dry. I was like, no. I almost believe that he's gone through all this stuff. Briefly, it worked. I'm going to end my thoughts on this, and then I'm going to shut up so we can move on to the next segment. Here's an exercise I would always like to have seen or would like to seen. See, I don't think it'll ever happen because I don't think anyone should ever feel that they're being shamed or less than or less than talented. But to do this exercise would be fascinating for me to watch a director come in and say, here's the materials that we have. Now, here's the scene as written. I want you to direct this scene. Shoot it. It's in the can. Done. Now I'm going to bring in someone such as a Spielberg, Ridley Scott, James Cameron. Okay. Same materials, same scene, direct it, shoot it, it's in the can, and then compare them side by side. And just to see, it's not to make someone look bad or someone else look better. People have different skill sets and different abilities, and some people are better at certain jobs than others. That's just a fact of life. However, it's more for an audience member, I think, to understand how difficult it is to make a movie, but also just the details that how one thing can change the entire scene, whether how it's edited or you put a light in a different part of the room and it changes the lighting like beads of sweat on Robert Urich's face. Maybe that scene was lit a little bit better and that's why it was more effective or the music cue is there or there's no music and that makes a difference. And you just see how one slight element in the filmmaking process can change an entire scene because you watch this and you're going, why doesn't this work at all? It seems like it has a lot of the elements, but it just doesn't work. And not even that it's really bad versus star Wars, which can, which can be seen as a bit campy, but I totally buy it. Why do I buy that? And I don't buy this very fine details. That's why. Yeah. If I was directing lighting would have been a lot different. And I would not shoot the floor. Yeah, know what isn't working and avoid that. Yeah. Which they don't do here. Okay. So with all that said, let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. Sure. What are some favorite scenes or moments we were able to pick out of the Ice Pirates? 
All right. I have one favorite scene. Okay. And I'm calling it Angelica Houston kicks some ass on Zagora. Zagora. Angelica Houston is one of the ice pirates. She's part of the main crew. And her character's name is Maida, or I'm just going to call her Maida. I would say Maida. We're going to go with Maida. And at this particular point in the film, and I'm jumping way, way ahead, the crew has now partnered up with Princess Karina and her nanny, but mainly Princess Karina, in her journey to find her father. And they're working together. And the deal is the pirates will get a ton of frozen blocks of ice. They're going to get a lot of water from the princess as payment if they help her find her father. Because her father is the key to finding the seventh world, which is basically a water world and will then give them, this, them basically an endless supply of water. And that that's the end game. That's the goal here. So in order to find her father, they first have to go to the planet of Zagora. And on Zagora is a character named Lanky Nibs, who happens to know where her father is. He's the contact that they have to meet on Zagora. So now we have the pirates and we have Princess Karina on Zagora. And they're in basically like the city district of Zagora. And we see some ruffians about, and we know that water is in very, very little supply here. And this was kind of cool. Like you had said, Bill, there's some good design here, production design, set design. We see the locals are suffering. There's no water. And so things are rough. Crime is rampant. And they come to sit at a table. We have Angelica Houston. We have Jason, Robert Urich, and Princess Karina. And they're sitting around the table. And they know that they've got to acquire a land craft in order to get across to the desert because they find out that Lanky Nibs is a, at a town called Sweetwater, but it's about 50 miles out or something like that into the desert. In order to get a land craft to get across the desert, Robert Urich has to go speak and make an arrangement with this frog-like creature, this female frog-like creature. So he leaves the table and that leaves Angelica Houston and Princess Karina sitting at the table. And who approaches Angelica Houston, but a couple of bounty hunters, I'm assuming, and I'm assuming they were hired by Zorn to track our ice pirates. I had to watch it twice, then just came with the realization, like, I guess they were bounty hunters. I had no idea. I think at one point, one of the bounty hunters, this quote unquote swordsman says, he, you know, he locates them and he actually says, oh, it's the cute one and the black gentleman, as in those are the ones they're looking for. Oh, okay. I think the second time I watched it, as well to jot some notes down. I think I'm like, oh, okay, I think these are bounty hunters that were hired by Zorn or something. I don't know. But regardless, they approach Angelica Houston and uh, Princess Karina. And at first they're like, hey, uh, do you want to dance? And Angelica is like, nope. And the uh, swordsman pulls out his sword and does some fancy sword work. And he slices through the table. So we know, oh, okay, this guy's a badass with a sword. So she stands up and pulls her sword. And we get a brief sword fight where all of a sudden we understand that Angelica Houston's pretty good with a weapon. And she slices cleanly through the body hunter's neck. And he does that typical thing where he's kind of still smiling and frozen. We see that there's a little slice across his throat. And then there's kind of that fun thing where he falls forward and his head falls clean off. We're like, oh, she sliced right through his whole neck. She re uh, addresses the remaining bounty hunter 
this African-American gentleman standing there with like a patch over his eye. And she says to him, I think you owe the lady and me an apology. And he says, my apologies. And she slices him across the face twice and then says, you didn't sound too sincere to me. And then he's like, uh, uh, I'm sorry. That's my one favorite scene because I actually think Angelica Houston playing the character of Maida is uh, kind of badass. It's not even really edited very well and you don't really see the action too closely, but you get the idea of it and she pulls it off because she's got a great look. Angelica Houston's a presence. She commands. And I like that she had her moment and I like the little button on the scene when she kind of tells the guy that he doesn't sound too sincere. Like she really stands up to these guys that are thinking, oh, these two ladies can't defend themselves and she kicks ass. There you go. I actually put this down as a moment and it was more of the apology section of that scene when she does fight the one bounty hunter and it's a horrible choreographed scene because you actually don't see any fighting going on. You just kind of see them reacting to a sword coming at them. And when she asks for the apology and the bounty hunter, like you said, just says, my apologies. And she cuts off his eye patch and then slices him across the cheek. And she's like, I didn't think it was sincere. It's like, oh, that's pretty cool. That kind of shows that she's a badass. Yeah. But then even going back when Robert Yorick, Jason, has to smooth talk that alien for the land cruiser. Mm -hmm. I thought they were cabbage people. I didn't realize they were frog people until the next scene. I didn't know what that was. she's literally going, ribbit, ribbit. If she didn't do that, I would have thought they were cabbage people. (laughs) Yeah. The cabbage people. Yeah, I was like, okay, that's kind of interesting. Yeah, that could be kind of a creepy villain character. They look like they had giant cabbage beds. Oh, completely. I didn't see the frog at all. If they had put like dark circles on the two nodules above their faces, it would have looked like frog eyes. That's what I, I would think they were going for. Oh, okay. Like these frog eyes on top of their faces. It was weird. It was so weird. And then I missed the first time I watched it. When she licked Jason's face. Right. I somehow missed that the first time. I think it's animated. Yeah, it is. It's an, it's an effect. Oh, boy. All right. Tell us about a favorite scene or moment that you have from this movie. This is a moment. So this is actually in the beginning of the movie. And here I am. I'm, I'm watching this. I'm like, all right, I'm giving this a chance. I'm buying in on what's going on. So we have our ice pirates. They land on this Templar ship to steal the ice. And they all go down into one section of the ship. And they cut a hole in the side of the Templar ship. Mm -hmm. And that's how they're going to get in. They knock down the door and Roscoe cuts it with the laser. And of course, Jason's trying to push the section of the the ship off and he can't do it. And Roscoe runs out of full force, knocks it over. And you find out they're in the Templar spaceship bathroom. (laughs) And then there's an alien creature sitting on the toilet. And it's funny because they have modern day toilets in this. This was actually my first complaint. Oh, is it? (laughs) But I I think I know where you're going and I like it. So keep going. So we have this alien. And yeah, this part I was like, oh, okay. I see how dumb this is going to be. Because of course, as soon as Roscoe hits the ground, notice the aliens there. It's got to do the little fart noise. I'm like, oh, that was my complaint. That's how this movie starts is with an alien on a toilet farting. Yeah. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. This is how it's going to (laughs) be. I'll be honest, this is what thought that ran through my head before I get to my moment. Did George Lucas watch this and go, oh, this is the kind of stuff I need to put in the prequels? Excuse me? With doo-doos and fart noises 
And I was like, holy crap, I can't believe he stole from this movie. But anyway, so we find out we're in the bathroom. The whole Ice Pirate crew is now into the ship. And it's Jason first, and he helps Roscoe up. And he looks at the alien sitting on the toilet, and he says to Roscoe, take care of him. And then Roscoe turns to one of the pirates, take care of him. And it's just fun. It just goes down the line. Take care of him, right. take care of him, take care of him. Till you finally get to Rod Perlman's character, who's Zeno. And he turns to say, take care of him. And at that point, there's no one behind him. So he walks off and then he walks back in and knocks him out. <laughs> but what's funny is then when they're leaving the ship with the ice, which I don't know how they got into the ship, and the princess, which they've now kidnapped, the alien is finally waking up and he has this huge, the alien's already gross looking as it is. And he's got like this weird funky shaped head, but mm-hmm. now he has this huge bump on the top of his head. Oh my God. I don't even know if I picked up on that. Yeah. Because his, his head is so weird shaped to begin with. I don't even think you would notice that he has a lump on it and that they run into him again and knock him out again. All right. That was kind of amusing. I agree. That was a funny little bit. Take care of him. You take care of him. You take care of him. Take care of him. Nobody wants to take care of him. Yep. The farting alien. That part was stupid. On a space toilet. But just the fact that I kept walking by him and the alien's just sitting there with his little knobby legs watching everyone come in and everyone's going, take care of him. Take care of him. See, even if they were going to do more of that, like that literal toilet humor throughout, if it were consistent, that would be one thing. But the humor kind of comes in and out throughout. Yeah, it's one thing we like to say. It's a tonal problem. Yeah. It's another tonal problem. Yeah. So here's just kind of a favorite moment. I'm not sure it's entirely effective. Uh, No, excuse me. I think it is kind of effective in the way that it's gross. But let's just talk about the space herpy. Now, not a great name. Now, this lends itself to my opening quote, the ship just got herpes. Because it's fun, but it's gross. A scene where we understand Roscoe's gone through the janitor closet. And this small, it looks like a uh, petrified egg. Thank you. Petrified egg. That's exactly what they call it. Rolls down onto the ground. And then it's this small worm-like creature comes out of it. There's It's oozing everywhere. And it's just gross. And it ends up climbing up the back of poor Roscoe while he's sleeping. This is as they're about to land on, is it Segura? Yes. Then Roscoe wakes up and brushes it off of him. And what the hell was that? Is the thing just like oozes and slithers away. Jason is like, what, what's the problem? And then it ends up all of a sudden on Jason's arm. And he's like, what the hell is that thing? And it just takes off and it left a circular mark on Roscoe's back and he's bleeding. And I was like, oh yeah, that is freaking nasty. So I thought that was kind of effective in a way. And I thought that little creature effect is very creepy. Now, it is a complete ripoff and very similar to the Seti Eel from Rathacon, as well as a total blatant ripoff of the Chestburster from Alien because of the shape of it and how it slithers across the floor and just takes off and disappears. And I'm like, oh, is it going to grow into a giant herpy and attack the crew and kill them one by one? I don't know. I thought it was gross and kind of effective, the space herpy. And almost funny. It was almost funny because it led to the one joke. Or the ship's got herpes. Oh boy, <laughs> I'm I'm reaching, man. I'm trying to I find know, something here because when we jump into the Swiss cheese complaint, biggest complaint was that stupid space herpy. All right, I fucking hated everything about that space herpy. <laughs> I guess nobody likes herpes. Yeah, that's true. Space herpes or otherwise. But here we go again. We bring in this 
space herpy, which I guess they're supposed to use for laughs. And then you see that it crawls on Roscoe and it leaves. It looks like a bite mark, pretty big bite mark. Because significant, space, yeah. Yeah, and the space herpy is not that big at that point. Oh, this is going to play into the movie somehow. No, no, no. Basically, just so they can say the ship has space herpes. That's right. The space herpy gets inadvertently killed at the end. Yeah. It gets smashed by, I forgot how. One of the robots steps on it. Okay. One of the rubber robots. Yes, one of the rubber robots. They look cool, but they're all just, it's dudes in rubber suits. Yeah. That was my my thing I forgot to mention earlier. Is that's where I think the budget went, was to creating all the sound design and sound effects. For every time a robot actually moves or does it something with a joint, arm, leg, whatever, they had to give it a robot noise. Yes, they did. It's a lot of robot sound effects because they're just rubber suits. Anyway, what's another favorite scene or moment from you, Bill Bant? All right, so you took the apology away from me. But I did like, it's more of a moment. So once again, I got to get into some plot stuff that we can hopefully explain. So the prince is looking for her dad. Well, we hear early in the movie that her father was killed by the Templars. Right. But then we find a robot version of the dad and the robot version of the dad has a message hidden in the robot that tells them the coordinates to get to the seventh world, but you have to go through a wormhole. The time warp, yes. Okay. But it almost seems like he's still alive and he's caught in this time warp, but that doesn't get resolved. No. I'm just assuming he's dead. So the crew takes off in their ship to go through this time warp to find the seventh world. So the last 15 minutes is a battle because now the Templars are chasing them. So then we find out that the Templars were using the princess to find the location of the seventh world so they can have control of the water to make sure they still have control over the galaxy. I hope that made sense. Yeah, that totally does make sense. And I've seen something very similar to that in a movie called Star Wars. They put the... Right, the homing homing device on the falcon in order to find the planet where the rebels are so right so the templars are following the pirates to the seventh world correct so a battle takes place while they're in the time warp and while this battle is going off the templars have actually boarded the ice pirate ship somehow Uh, that i can't figure out how they did but time is passing rapidly Mm mm-hmm and I thought that was kind of neat. Everyone's getting older a lot faster. And they would right. kind of do this special, like the stupid special effect where they would like quickly do a, like a speed up of the footage and then a weird sound effect. But I just found it interesting because I don't think I've ever really seen anything like this before. Passing time. So the fight itself maybe takes 10 minutes of screen time, but all the actors supposedly age about 50 years right it'd be one shot you would see like jason robert urich all of a sudden he has a beard and then five minutes later the beard's even longer now it's gray now his hair is gray so i thought that was kind of interesting how they came up with that i was like okay that's a little bit clever i'll give him that and then all right i have to give this away too so before the battle even happens jason and the princess uh, have a little naughty time and we find out the princess gets pregnant (laughs) And so she basically has the baby in about five minutes. And then at the very end, the baby grows up to be Robert Urich. 
as he looks like in the beginning, because now the real Jason has is now like 80 years old and his son has come to save the day and defeat all of the Templars because he's way younger than everyone else. His son, who looks exactly like him, who is played by Robert here. Yeah, I like <laughs> that. They I couldn't recast that part for some reason. Was somebody that looked just kind of looked like it would be his son. No, they actually use Robert Urich. It's him as his own son. I thought that was kind of... Yeah, there there were elements of it, I agree, that were cool. Uh, it had me thinking. It made me think. It was a cool concept. The idea of going through a time warp and rapidly aging, how would that work? And how to show that is an interesting idea. Watching it is tough because the choreography of the fights is terrible. Oh, my God. Some... Uh, not so great wig work. But the idea of it, I thought, was neat. Right. So that's why Agreed. I said moment, not a scene, because I don't want anyone to have to watch all that. Sorry. It's long. It's crazy. It's bananas. You're watching it going, how much time is left? In the oh, this has got to be the end of the movie. Is this what is going on right now? How is this the climax of the film? It is. It's pretty much the, it's the big finale. So Tonally, it's so off-putting, but if you just take that scene like in a vacuum and you start breaking it down, it makes you think. It also kind of makes me think of Interstellar. There's the ones when they land on the one planet and time moves quicker. Yes. And the two abandon the ship for a moment to try and save another crew member, or they have to retrieve a piece of equipment because they take too long. They get back to the ship, and the guy they had left behind on the ship had been there for like 30 years <laughs> waiting for them. And he's like an old man. Yep. It's insane to wrap your mind around because it's the whole time warp concept, wormhole concept. So there was something in here. That's why I want to read the original script, because I'm wondering if they have something like that. There's, uh, and I'll step on the research a little bit. There's a scene earlier in the film where you can tell that it's when the pirates have been captured by the Templars, and now they're at the Templar planet called Mithra, I believe, or Mithra. and they're about to be castrated and turned into eunuchs, uh, servants of the Templars. And I guess in the background, and I missed this, but you see some of the workers in the factory with severed limbs and they're like harvesting organs. And it just lends itself to a darker subplot. And this was in some of the research. And I don't know how much of this is true or not, but they were just commenting on the fact there may have been part of the original concept, which was much darker and much more serious in tone. Right. And just to piggyback that, because like I said, I did watch this twice, but I did go back a third time <laughs> to catch something. And there is a scene like right before they go into the castration conveyor belt where we yeah. see an alien outside the factory and he dumps something in the trash. That's what they were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And it's arms and legs. Right. I was like, whoa, that's a little dark. Exactly. Like I said, I didn't catch that until the third time. Right. So clearly this was one thing and then it got changed into something completely different. We can't completely fault the creators here. They were hampered and uh, handcuffs, I think, were put on them as a result of budget constraint. Is that it for moments and scenes? That's it. All right, here we go. This is kind of funny because our next segment is Swiss Cheese the Complaint Department, which kind of sounds like we just did it twice <laughs> already. This is the official Swiss Cheese and Complaint Department. And why do we call it Swiss Cheese? How are you going to even say this line, Jason? Because this movie is not delicious. Right. 
All right, so you got to come up with something on the fly here. So why do we call it Swiss cheese? Uh, because although this movie is stale, moldy cheese, it still has holes. <laughs> I don't know. And if it doesn't fall under Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. What do we have left that we haven't even mentioned already about this movie, The Ice Pirates? What more, more bashing can we do on The Ice Pirates? It's funny because we already have mentioned some of our complaints, so maybe that we'll breeze through this. I'm not sure. So our first glimpse into Jason's character, our hero, our protagonist, is when he attempts to look down Princess Karina's dress while she's in her stasis chamber. She's like basically like in hypersleep. Is this our save the cat moment? Is this supposed to be our hero? Is he a creeper? Is this our guy? And then the rest of the crew pulls him away and we immediately know that, oh, this is what he does always about the ladies, trying to hook up with the ladies. That's his first priority. He's that rogue, that scoundrel, that Han Solo type with the ladies. They pull him away and he's like, oh man, what happened to the we rape, we pillage? And I'm like, what the hell? That's a line? What happened to we rape, we pillage? Not good. Not a good look for a PG movie. No, nor our hero to be saying that from the get. Not cool. I agree. All right. This didn't make any sense to me. All right. So the first 20 minutes of the movie. It's basically the ice pirates breaking into the Templar ship. You could have just ended it right there, Bill. It said the first 20 minutes of the movie. Right. Didn't make any sense. Yeah, I agree. Good call. Great complaint. Thank you. <laughs> so they break into the Templar ship. They steal the ice. They kidnap the princess. They get caught. They get caught. So they're not necessarily good ice pirates. Mm. So now they're going to get sent to get castrated and become slaves. Right. Yet... The princess saves Jason Roscoe to help her on her quest to find her dad. The resume is not very good right now. No, no. She decides to rescue her kidnappers that have treated her rather poorly. Yes. Why the about face? I didn't get that. Because she thinks Jason is hot. Okay. That's why. Okay. She is yearning for his rippling muscles. (sighs) Makes absolutely no sense. There's no reason why she would rescue them. At that point, she totally does a 180 in a matter of minutes. You're absolutely right. It's a great call. Again, I was just confused as to why she's recruiting them to help her get off planet to go search for her father in the first place. Couldn't she just leave on her own if she's not being held prisoner? I didn't understand any of that either. She could just leave anytime. She seems to be quite friendly with Zorn and the Templars. Yeah. And then all of a sudden Zorn does a 180 because she decides to walk away from him at the worst dance party rave event I've ever seen on film in my life. <laughs> so weird. I would rather watch the dance party in Matrix. Was it Revolutions, the second one? Uh, I believe so. Everyone kills on. I'd rather watch that scene again. Uh, that's a great call. I had mentioned earlier that the music is terrible in this. Yes. Uh, but Bruce Baughton did the soundtrack, the score. And I'm just going to give a quick shout out to him because he did the score for Tombstone, which I've listened to ad nauseum. So just wanted to say that real quick. Yeah, well, you'd mentioned that whole scene when with the kidnapping of the Princess Karina. That robot fight is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. And there's this goofy music in the background. Again, I just couldn't stand the music. In that sequence, that, go ahead, go ahead. Is that the mini robot versus axe-wielding robot? Yes, yes, I believe so. That's how it ends up. It's that's, really hard to... That's in my complaint department, yeah. Which robot is which... They, all the robots look the same. So you can't tell who the good yes. ones are and who the bad ones are. 
and they're all just called robots. Although that's not true. I guess Roscoe does have names for a couple of them. I don't know what they are, though. But in that sequence, Ron Perlman has his hand chopped off. He loses his hand. And they come to him later. Here's my complaint. And he's got a bandage wrapped around it. And he's like, eh, yeah, it sucks. I'm fine. I'm good. Good. Here's a quick question, though, Bill Bant. Did he grow it back later on? Yes. What was that? I don't know. Because he plays a joke. I don't, I forget who he plays the joke on, but somebody shakes Roscoe. his hand. Was it Roscoe? And he pulls yeah. his hand off. He's like, <clears throat> oops, thinking he had a prosthetic hand on. Then he's like, oh, I actually just grew my hand back. Oh, good. You're all healed. So in this universe, Ron Perlman's character, I play, I think his character's name is Zeno, can regrow his appendages. Yeah, that would have been nice to kind of know that because he insists that they grab his hand. Mm hmm. And I think Maida brings it back to him. Right. She does. He, oh, that's right. He does insist after his hand is chopped off. He says, get my hand. So does he need that in order to regenerate it? I would have liked to have known. Like if they went to the planet and then they go to some kind of doctor and, and they're like, oh, okay. Right. So the science of this, because it's 10,000 years in the future. So supposedly technology and science has progressed to the point where they can reattach his hand and it's okay. While still using regular swords, probably. It all makes sense. This I found funny. Pseudo complaint. Here we go. Back again. First 20 minutes of the movie. Ice pirates are in the Templar ship to steal the ice. And they go in the main storage room. And you can tell this is some kind of factory. This is not the interior of a spaceship. And there's a control center in the middle of the Templar ship. And one of the Templar knights sees the crew has broken in to steal the ice. And he goes to the command center to warn right. everyone. And the fact he crawls up a standard extending ladder. Yeah, just like <laughs> that's the only way to get to the control room is on a ladder that you would put on it the side like of the house. It looks like an escape ladder that's been lowered down from the walkway. It's like you didn't have the money to put a ladder, like a real ladder or something that looks like it was part of the ship. Just a regular old staircase. It's like, let's make a control room for this but not have access to it. Oh, I got this ladder in the janitor's closet that's in the cockpit of the spaceship. We'll use that. And you guys just climb up and down that to get to the control room. I was like, is that an actual ladder ladder? Like a modern day ladder? Yes, it is. Yeah, it was all, it's such a, again, hodgepodge mishmash of modern and old and ancient and then futuristic. I don't know where we're at or what we're doing. Bill Bant. Yes. It was minute 57, and I was still not sure who the main bad guy was. <laughs> I looked at the clock, and I'm like, wait, who's the villain in this? Who are they up against? Who are they fighting? Because we know it's not Zorn, so it's the decrepit old dude hanging on to life in some like crazy, weird chamber thing. He says something to the effect of, they want me to let go of my body, but I can still feel things. And it's very weird and, again, lends itself to a different story. There must have been a different story, and maybe he was a bigger character. But that's John Carradine playing that role, the famous Carradine family of actors. Yeah, because the way you just explained that, you would almost think you move on to a different phase. And he doesn't want to move on to that next phase. Not that he's right. going to die, but there's another phase he would But his consciousness to. is going to transcend somehow or move on into a different existence. Maybe they can still... He can still communicate. But we don't see any of that at no. any point in the movie, so we have no idea what the hell that is. Or does he get put into a robot? I don't know. Maybe a, a garbage robot? The trash robot? Maybe. Who knows? Uh, but yeah, I was like, oh, well, thanks for showing up and collecting that paycheck, John Carradine. Uh, I've got a few a few more 
All right. <laughs> Just keep going, man. Keep rolling. All right. Two words. Passions. Storm. <laughs> what the hell was that? Once again, who is this movie made for? Why would you have this scene? I think I have this. Uh, yes, I said literally 13 minutes left in the movie and we're being treated to a sex scene between Jason and Karina. There was 13 minutes left in the movie and we spend how long on this scene? It's so weird. But break it. You can break it down for the young. Yeah. Okay. So I think they're just about to go into the time warp to find the seventh planet, or mm-hmm. hell it's called at this point. And Jason goes to the princess's chambers and he hears the princess doing a little moaning and groaning. And, you know, he's got the eye raised like, Ooh, what's going on here? And you come to find out one of the robots is giving her like a deep tissue massage. Okay. Ha ha ha. Very funny. And then Jason says, Hey, I downloaded this for you. So I guess it's a mixtape of the future. It just looks like a piece of glass. She's like, Oh, that's, that's cool. What is it? And he's like, it's passion storm. She's like, oh, what is Passion's Storm all about? And you can tell that the sexual tension is riveting right there. And mm-hmm. they kiss. And she goes, hey, let's go into the bedroom and play some Passion Storm. <laughs> so the door opens and it's this huge bed. And he puts it in. And then on there's like, like a video monitor on one side of the wall. And I think it's showing the beach, maybe like a tropical beach. And literally... A storm is beginning to happen on the screen, and then the storm starts, and the two of them are making out and touching each other or whatever, and then the it literally starts raining in the room, torrential, tropical storm-type rain in the room while they're having sex. Correct. And it's so weird. It's batshit crazy. Mm-hmm. And... When he has the small piece of glass or what he calls the tape called Passion Storm and he enters it into the slot, it's now we have just entered the sex holodeck. I like that sex holodeck. Yeah, that's kind of what I just made me think of because that's what this is as if it's real. So it creates a hyper real romantic sex situation, sexual situation. And it's supposed to be somewhat sensual too, but it becomes... Uh, because they're supposed to be in the rain on the beach and the and the clouds and the sun behind, you know shining through and all of that. But then, of course, we get the worst, cheesiest lines that are supposed to be kind of sexy but goofy and sexual innuendos and euphemisms throughout where it's something like she they're making out and he's on top of her and they're about to really get it on. And she says something to the effect of, aren't you supposed to be at the controls? And he's like, I'll take care of that right now or something like that. Then he goes oh, down. Oh, yeah. He's, he has he actually did, Then he on. goes down on her like, yeah. Oh, that was the, yeah, that was the other one. This is quite oh, stiff. Oh, you're stiff. And I mean your sword. Like, oh, my God. So there's nothing sexy about it is the bottom line. And they spend way too much time on this scene. And I'm looking at the clock going, guys, we got to get to the seventh world here and save the day. Not good. Passion storm. Passion storm. <laughs> two words. <sighs> Passion storm. Hey, apparently... 10,000 years from now, Rollerball is still a widely enjoyed sport and movie. The first time I saw, I was like, wait, that's not Rollerball. And then again, I'm like, holy crap, that's Rollerball. And then they show it again. Yeah, that really is Rollerball. I couldn't believe that. And it's the actual movie that they're watching. Yes. Which would be funnier if it was the remake because the remake's so bad. 
So right. the fact they would have a bad remake in a bad movie would have been great, but it's the original James Conn version. Okay, I'm just going to do this one last one. So the princess supposedly finds her father. We find out it's a robot. They decide to strip the robot down completely to see if there's a message. And then the robot played by Bruce Valanche. No, not that one. The dad robot. Prince, the princess's father robot. You're right. Oh, is that what they were dissecting? I thought they, they found sw- because the, the thing was, they think that they have found her father, whom is uh, a robot. Correct. And then discover that he had left behind a ring that had the code to where the actual seventh world was or the uh, coordinates. But the ring was in Bruce Valanche's mouth. Right. So where did they find that information? I thought it was off the father robot, but it's in the no, Bruce you're Valanche right. robot. I, I think one thing led to another. I think you were right. I jumped ahead. I apologize. No, it's I okay. You're right. I think they were probably dissecting the father robot first, which led them to the clue, which led them to the clue that they needed to find the ring which Bruce Valanche, who plays the... The fact that he's in this movie and he's playing a character named Wendon, I believe. And I have no idea what his purpose was. That whole sequence is, again, just nonsensical and just, why are we even here? Why is Who is this character? Why do we need it? Is any of this necessary? But the bottom line is, Bruce Valanche plays a character named Wendon, who's supposed to help them find her father, and he happens to be a robot himself. They can remove his head and he can still talk because he's like a android and he has been keeping this magical ring inside his mouth that has the actual coordinates to the seventh world. And it's just like one thing leads to another and they discovered the ring. But yes, I think once they found out the father was a robot, they dissected him, which led them to the fact that they needed to find the ring. And then Bruce Valanche, AKA Wyndon says, Oh, I just so happen to have it in my mouth. He extends his tongue and there's the ring. They take the ring from his tongue and they're like Ooh, uh. the ring activates showing the coordinates well the ring activates with the princess's ring okay was that it right i apologize ladies and gentlemen see this is how it gets so crazy that you can't help but check out at some points in this movie and i had checked out a little bit at this point i kind of did too and that's what confused me I'm like wait so karina has a ring that works with her father's ring but we've never heard of this ring before right and it's oh my dad left a message oh i just happened to have a ring that's going to decode it wait shouldn't we have known about the ring or she mentions it at some point early in the movie oh my father had left me this ring or this is the ring of yeah, our of course yeah family you know it's funny it's you'll so see abru- it's, that's what happens it's abrupt movies. and it's it's lazy writing is what it is because it just it's an easy out it's like we need a device here we need a macguffin of some corn it's not even really a muff- macguffin because it hasn't shown up this is the first time we see it but you'll see that sometimes in adventure films today like i can think of some where uh i've watched either it be red notice or uncharted and it's supposed to be these adventure films and we have we have to see our characters our protagonists solve these puzzles and one thing is supposed to lead to another and then they get toward the end and they just magically come up with some sort of there's a riddle that needs to be solved and they have the key in the right spot or they find something to unlock a box or whatever and you're like there was no setup for this they just it just happened to be there it's all too convenient and that's what happens in this moment yeah there's a lot of abruptness in this movie and i thought this was one of the biggest ones it's like oh, i have the ring what ring i've never heard anything about a ring before 
oh, okay, you've got the solution in your pocket all of a sudden. Great. Too easy. That's just an overall complaint. That's the main example I could think of. The rings. They just happen to have two rings all of a sudden. The Dakota rings. I love it. Oh, what else you got left for Swiss cheese complaints? I, I'm just stopping right there. I'm done. I think, okay. Good, good timing. All right, good. Don't need to break it down any further. Yeah, we're beating this movie to death. Okay. Hey, let's take a quick break and hear from our friends over at the Retro Movie Roundtable Podcast. Hey, do you enjoy movies? If so, you're going to want to check out the Retro Movie Roundtable, the podcast where we watch movies and then talk about them. We're inviting you to join us as we dive into beloved movies from 10 years ago and beyond. We cover every genre and every era. The show is fun and personal, but also insightful and informative. The Retro Movie Roundtable is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Please check them out over at the Retro Movie Roundtable Podcast. Now back to our show. So let's move on to, hey, it's that actor. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. Who do you have, Jason? I was kind of thinking out the out of the box here because I, I reached a little bit with this one, Bill Bant. Okay. This actor sounded familiar to me. Does that give you a clue? No. Because we don't actually see him. We only hear his voice. His name is Ron Taylor. Okay. He's the voice of Pimp Robot. You went pimp robot. That's awesome. Ah, uh, yes. I.e. transportation and exotic cribs be included. This be my bad chariot. Oh, boy. Well, I don't know. His voice sounded a little familiar, so I decided to look him up. Rest in peace, Ron Taylor. He died at the early age of 49 from a heart attack. He was not only an actor and voiceover artist, he was also a vocalist. He'd performed with Billy Joel, Bruce Springsteen, at a James, Sheila E., Slash, and others. His blues band, the Nervous Brothers, played at clubs and other venues around the country. His greatest triumph was a show called It Ain't Nothing But the Blues, which traces the history of blues music. In 1999, the show was nominated for four Tony Awards, including Best New Musical and Mr. Taylor for Best Featured Actor in a Musical. Now, looking at his filmography a little bit here, going back to 1983, a year before this film was released, he was the big black guy in Trading Places. Now, this is fascinating, Bill Bant. We should look into this a little further. In the 1984 film, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, he is uncredited as the voice for Lao Shea. Hmm. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Lao Shea is the baddie in the very opening of the film, right? At Club Obi-Wan. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Anyway, yeah. uh, he's an African-American gentleman. Ladies and if you haven't figured that out already, and so to, and obviously very talented with his voice work, but uh, to do Lao Shea, who's Asian, I, I don't know. So anyway, uh, 1984, he plays the dude uh, in Exterminator 2. Hey, in 84, he's on Miami Vice, plays the character Linus Oliver in Calderon's Return Part 1. The hit Ooh, list. Yeah, nice. so our guy, Ron Taylor in Miami Vice. Uh, he's in a ton of... TV shows, everything from Night Court to Wise Guy to Matlock, Quantum Leap, Twin Peaks. 
LA Law, Home Improvement, Family Matters, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, ER, NYPD Blue, Profile, Ally McBeal, City of Angels. He's done it all. So RIP, but uh, he was hilarious. It's such a weird moment in the movie. The pimp robot just making an appearance in the middle of a, of a chase sequence. A horrible chase sequence. When our pirates and the Princess Karina are trying to escape Mithra in order to go on a, a journey to find her father. And it's Killjoy and Roscoe that need a ride in order to get to her ship. And Pimp Robot shows up to save their asses. It's so ridiculous. Who's your hey, it's that actor, Bill Band? That was a good one, Jason. I, I like that one. I was just, I, yeah, I didn't know anything about him. So, hey, I learned something on my own podcast. Talking about a terrible movie. So for my hey, it's that actor, it is Ian Abercrombie, mm-hmm. who played Jaime. And he is the store owner that sells... They captured Jason and Roscoe as slaves to Princess Karina. Uh So Ian has been in many television shows, ranging from Get Smart and Happy Days to Blossom and Seinfeld, where he had a recurring character. Um, He played Alfred Pennyworth in the short-lived TV series Birds of Prey. But the role I know him most for is of the Wiseman in the final movie installment of the original Evil Dead movie series, Army of Darkness. Uh So he's the one that tells Bruce Campbell's character the clock. Got it. Baratu, Nick too. Ian also has a Star Wars connection. He was the voice of Chancellor Palpatine slash Darth Sidious in the Star Wars The Clone Wars series. Very cool. Yes, we unfortunately lost Ian back in 2012 at the age of 77. So RIP Ian Abercrombie. All right. Well done. I like it. Great choice, Bill Bat. So let's move on to facts and trivia. Do we have any facts and trivia left about the Ice Pirates? Yes, we do have some facts and trivia, Bill Bant. And according to Wikipedia and IMDb, where a lot of us look, uh, there wasn't a great deal. But I'll start with this. The film was made at MGM, then under David Begelman, with John Foreman as producer. It was originally called The Water Planet. Bill had mentioned that earlier and had a $20 million budget. It was based on a script by Stanford Sherman, writer of Crawl. However, as MGM was in financial difficulty, its bankers put a limit of $8 million on all films. Begelman and Foreman contacted Stuart Raffel, whose film High Risk from 1981 had impressed them. Raffel said he would have to rewrite Ice Pirates and make it more comic, and they agreed. Raffle and Foreman said pirate movies like The Crimson Pirate were the main inspiration, and they deliberately did not watch Star Wars. Oh, okay. I don't know if I buy that last part. Kind of hard to avoid Star Wars at that point, although probably weren't uh, watching it uh, on VHS at that point. Interesting. So, yeah, like I said, facts and trivia are hard to come by for this movie. And usually I don't do the casting rumors, but I saw this in so many different places. I figured, yeah, this might be kind of true and we'll share it. Kevin Costner was originally considered to play Jason. Crazy, yeah. And turned down the role. Good move right there. No kidding. Uh, I did come across that. That's right. Yeah, that would have ended his career before it even started. Oh my goodness. That's a good one. Now, take it or leave it, but supposedly Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, once jokingly said that Ice Pirates was singularly responsible for bringing back the death penalty to California. Could be true. This fact I kind of found funny because, like I said, I'm trying to find anything positive about this movie. And I think when they go to the Templar planet, which I don't remember, is it Mithra? That's right. 
Okay. And I was like, oh, that's a really cool set. Well, that set was originally used for Logan's run. Mm. And they basically just stole it and used it again. Also, I think they used some of the props from Logan's run, the TV series, because uh, one of the scenes we see a hovercraft car. And I think even some of the pimp robot yes. is used in the Logan's Run TV series. So right, a, lot of, right. a lot of Logan's Run in this movie. Yeah. Probably should have watched Logan's Run too before they decided yeah. to do this for <laughs> how to do a better sci- cheesy sci-fi movie. They should have done a double feature. Yeah. Logan's Run and Star Wars. Yep. John Matuzek went on to star as Sloth in The Goonies. Now, John Matuzek is the character Killjoy in this. He's the taller gentleman, beefy guy. I actually thought he was pretty good in this. He does his part. He doesn't have a ton to do, but he's like the big heavy guy. He's six foot seven, ex-football player, played in the National Football League on several teams, known for a six-year stint, I believe, on the Oakland Raiders. But see, that was a weird thing about his character also, because we meet him on the slave ship and he just randomly starts talking to jason roscoe Mm -hmm. then he keeps trying to connect with them to get rescued acting like he knows them but it's that's not determined and then when they finally escape he runs into zeno which is ron perlman Mm -hmm. and those two seem like they're best buddies some holes yeah i love that when they meet on the prison barge in the prison cell and he starts getting chummy. This is Killjoy with Jason and Roscoe and he offers Roscoe a gold chain for some of his soup. Right. And he ends up giving Roscoe the gold chain, correct? Correct. So then later on when they've now all broken out and they're helping Princess Karina get off planet and Roscoe and Killjoy run into Pimp Robot. Pimp Robot says, I'll take water or credit cards or gold. And then Killjoy offers him the gold chain for payment, for transportation. I'm like, wait, I thought he gave Roscoe a gold chain, didn't he? Yeah, so he just lifted it back. Because you find out he is a thief. Oh, see? Just you saying that just opened up like 30 questions. I'm just going to have to let it go. I cannot. I I can't go down that road. I had a whole thing on that, too. I was like, wait a minute. How did they get back to the princess's ship? And because in the next scene, we see like their ship is taking off from the planet. We're like, oh, I guess they all got onto the ship at some point together. But how how does Roscoe even have the goal to make it that far into that scene? Because they're on the slave ship. They go into the castration thing. Oh, and they get stripped stripped. down. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I got to go forward. All right. Here's my last fact. So this was interesting to me. So according to director Stuart Raphael, the film's original ending included a sequence of the crew flying over, and I've heard two different places, modern-day Miami Beach, and I've also heard off the California coast. Mm-hmm. So the sequence was cut by an MGM studio executive without the director or producer's knowledge just before the film was sent for distribution. And then, of course, the theatrical trailer revealed that the seventh world is Earth, spoiling an important plot element. Yep. Again. I think there's probably several different versions of this movie and things got cut. They had budgetary constraints and it just turned out to be a hot mess. But some interesting factoids there. This is what I'll end on. Actor Robert Urich and actress Angelica Houston will later appear together in the hit Western miniseries Lonesome Dove as former Texas Ranger Jake Spoon and Clara Allen, respectively. Which made me think also, when you were just talking about the fact that the seventh world is revealed to be Earth at the end of this movie, which is kind of strange. I was like 10,000 years in the future, and I guess Earth looks just the same. So that's good news, I suppose. 
I was thinking of Alien Resurrection, which was the fourth film in that franchise. Correct. And Ron Perlman is in that film. Yes, he is. And if I'm not mistaken, at the very end of that film, are they not approaching Earth? Yes, they are. He has a great line in that movie, actually, Ron Perlman, when they say... uh, uh, we're just going to run the ship into earth or we're going to, we got to head for earth and Perlman just goes earth, man, what a shithole. <laughs> I just thought that was kind of a coincidence. Mm-hmm. He's on a spaceship heading toward earth as if that's the, the goal, like the final destination yeah. in both those films years apart. That's funny. All right. So let's move on to box office. The ice pirates was released on March 16th, 1984 on 1175 screens on an estimated budget of $9 million. It grossed $13.1 million domestically. It debuted number three at the box office behind two movies we have already discussed in this podcast. Uh, At number two was Footloose and the number one movie that week was Slash. The Ice Pirates would only stay in the top 10 for another two weeks. It was the 67th highest grossing movie domestically of 1984 beating out such movies as Tank, starring James Gardner, and Dreamscape, starring Dennis Quaid. Moving on to reviews, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel did not review this movie for their show at the movies. I couldn't even find a written review from Roger Ebert online, so I went to a new source for this episode and looked up The Ice Pirates in Leonard Maltin's 2015 movie guide, The Modern Era, which is the final edition of the long-running movie guide series. And he gave the Ice Pirates two stars, stating the script alternates between clever and half-baked, claustrophobic direction keeps this from being more than passable rainy afternoon fare. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 17% and has an IMDb rating of 5.6. Wow, that's actually high. I know. I was surprised by that, too. I'm going to have to change that and do a rating after this pod. (laughs) So let's move on to additional thoughts and questions. What are some, I don't know why we have additional thoughts and questions about the Ice Pirates, but we might. Oh, there's always plenty to add, especially to a piece of crap like this. Man, I'm just really loading on here. Yeah, no, hey. Stuff happens. I, you know, I mentioned uh, before, like techno jargon, uh, like on our inner space pod, I was talking about that, which I always love, or like science speak. Uh, and the writers here did their damnedest to write some sci fi speak into this one, especially when they're making maneuvers on the ship. I wish I had better examples, but here's a weak one when they say things like spin left, prepare to break, spin to port. It's not happening. The directionals are out. <laughs> The thrusters have failed or engines have failed or something like that. The directionals are out. I love that when Ron Perlman says that. Why are we forcing this, guys, to use come up with a different word to describe something? We all know what it is. Just use, just call it what it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I just thought that was funny. Here's a question. Okay. And this is kind of for myself. The question I have for myself is that does this movie replace V.I. Warshawski as the worst movie I've ever seen? Yeah, you have to answer that one for I us. Think I think I got to rewatch V.I. Warshawski now. Oh, geez. I got to maybe just have a, like a double feature and put them head to head. I have never watched V.I. Warshawski just because of your hatred for it. <laughs> I know. So if you do decide to watch it again, I will watch it with you. So you have support. I appreciate that, Bill. Ben. No problem. Thanks. 
this question just popped in my head. I don't even know why I'm asking this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So we're on the, and I just call it the pirate planet. I can never remember the name of it. And we meet the one bounty hunter and he gets served his food and he picks up the mouse. Was he, oh yeah. Was he trying to sniff the mouse's butt? Oh, that was weird. Yeah. I don't know what was going I thought he was going to eat it or I don't know what he was going to do with that mouse, but that was kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. You're not crazy for thinking that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Legitimate question. Okay. It's fair. All right. It was weird. Fair. No, it's all good. I don't judge you. Okay. No judgment here on this podcast, except we're completely judging this film. I'm just glad that you can never remember the name of the pirate planet. It's Zagora. And I had to go through my notes just to find it again, because I couldn't remember it for the life of me. And it really is funny. And so I'm so happy that you had mentioned this from the start, that you couldn't remember anything from them, that you had to watch it twice. And I thought, I'm not even kidding. Because we record this podcast a little bit later in the evening, and sometimes my head's a little fuzzy. I've had a little too much caffeine, trying to stay up, stay alert, stay high energy for this podcast, and I forget things. And I'm thinking, right before we started, I couldn't remember a damn thing from this movie, and I'd watched it twice. I'm like, is it me? Is it part of getting older? No. This movie is strangely forgettable almost immediately. Yes. Like immediately. It is. A scene happens and like you're just like, wait, what just happened? I just I saw it. I was awake. I was watching. I was paying attention. And I can't remember anything. I'm just glad there are no questions there. It's just this movie. You talked about this earlier. We always talk about making a bad movie better. Is this movie salvageable? Is this the type of movie that, let's say, for instance, Ben Stiller could take it, you know, back in the day when he was doing like Tropic Thunder, those types of films and his style of comedy of like he took Starsky and Hutch and turned that into right comedy, his style of comedy. At least he was in that film. I don't know if he was a producer on that. I have to, I'd have to look that up. So yeah, if they went full bore comedy with this, would that work? Or are we preferring to see what the actual darker tone version of this is? I would prefer to see the original. Yeah. I mean, how many space comedies outside of Spaceballs, which is an actual spoof, are out there? That's a kind of a hard nut to crack. I wouldn't want to touch it that way. Right. Yeah. And because it, it is difficult to do. Also, there are aspects of this that I do like. I mean, from if you're just going foundationally with cross genre of a medieval fantasy tale with uh, mixed with science fiction, the borrowing from Mad Max and making water the precious commodity. There's some interesting things there. The time warp sequence that having to be some or serious obstacle that they're facing. There's some cool, cool things. It's just hey, they, they did a James Bond movie based on water. So you can make that work. I almost forgot to mention that. I, I don't know if I didn't put I didn't put that in my fun facts and trivia, but or maybe did you mention that Kevin Costner would then would end up going on to do Waterworld? I, that part I did not mention. Right. Which is kind of weird. I'm sure you read that script and that's where the genesis is started. <laughs> that is fact, ladies and gentlemen. Write that down. All right. So here's a pseudo legitimate question. And then I'm done. Angelica Houston made a 
Do you think she had a thing for Jason? Oh, didn't really touch on that or they kind of like hinted on it just a tiny, tiny bit. I don't think you're reading into it at all. I think you're right on. I sensed it. I definitely sensed it. Okay. Angelica Houston's good, man. She's, I mean, she's a great act. She's a wonderful actress. She's iconic. She's Angelica Houston. She has such a presence and she can do a lot with a stare. She has that look. Oh yeah. He's looking at you sideways. It's not good. That's bad. Serious. And she has a couple looks in this that say a lot. Uh, and that's a credit to her as an actress. But uh, yeah, I sensed it when he was making eyes or moves or saying certain things to Princess Karina. She was not thrilled. Yeah, I wasn't sure if they had a history or something was going on currently. I think so. Okay. Any additional thoughts or questions? I My last thing is just with the cross-genre thing. I, it's tough, man, with this medieval sci-fi cross genre I, my question is always why do they have swords like don't laser weapons make swords obsolete right i thought the same thing too like i bought in the fact that they look like knights i was okay with that i really Me was crawl has fact, a similar problem from the year previous yeah but then the fact that some have swords and some have laser guns uh-huh so and the, those laser guns are terrible. They didn't seem to ever kill anything. No. So that's like, so if you're going to have swords, then they should be powered up somehow. Like as if they were like laser swords, like, a oh, wait, right. that's right. I think you can still do it. I don't know. Yeah. That's all I got, Billy. Okay. <laughs> I'm all just right. speechless at this point. All right. So let's move on to our rating. So Jason, on a scale of one to five space herpes, what do you <laughs> give the ice pirates? <laughs> Oh, man. Hold on a second. Let me collect myself. Okay. I My instinct was to be really harsh, but after this entire pod and spending a lot of time on it, I'm going to give my original rating a boost, and I'm going to go with one space herpy. Oh, so you're going to go less at one point. My original rating was 0.5 space herpes. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it had no herpes. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> right. Was that, that's a positive thing. Wait. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I also gave it one. I cannot in good conscience recommend this film. It's one space herpy for me. Yeah. I don't even think about doing 0.5. Yeah, we could. This is a really bad movie. But there's worse movies but, out there than this. Yeah. I got to give it a one. I'll give it a one because the acting is okay. And it does have a few moments. and. You can see the seeds of some cool conceptualization or some ideas here. It's just so poorly executed and it misses the mark by so far. So one space herpy. I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all 80s movies podcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, movies you want us to cover, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook Meta at All 80s Movies Podcast or tweet us at Podcast All 80s. Next week, we'll be discussing the 1989 James Bond thriller License to Kill, starring Timothy Dalton, Harry Lowell, and Robert Davi. We hope you join us again. Have a totally great week, everyone. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. <laughs> <laughs>